All right. Are you good now? I hope so. Are you touch no, him? he's totally depraved. We're hoping. You're all Why do you call me list? good? <laughs> all right. In five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Rugged Theology, where we talk about church planting, theology, and drink coffee. Welcome to Rugged Theology. I am your host, Adam Diamond, and today we have, I think, hopefully one of our favorite episodes that people like to listen to. I think it's one of our most popular ones. Anyways, it's going to be Scripture Screw-Ups 3, where we look at scriptures that people just tend to screw up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So today I have with me tackling these scriptures, Mr. David Drover. Hello. Mr. Stephen Bray himself. Hello. And Mr. Stephen Da. Salut. All right, guys. So it's great to have you uh, here with me. I think you are um, the best for this podcast. Someone backed it. We won't name who. Matthew Leahy. But uh, Yes. <laughs> no pointing at He screws up scripture all the time. We don't want him on a podcast like this. I hope he listens to this episode. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Um, all right, guys, so we're going to take on a few different ones now. We've done two of these already, but, you know, lo and behold, who would have guessed that people just like to screw up a lot of Scripture? <laughs> it's not just a handful of select ones. Like, uh, this is done on an awful lot, um, and which is like, you know, just something that we like to say in these episodes, basically just open up your Bible and read it, and uh, there's a lot less likely chance that you'll screw it up if you read it within its context, uh, within its letter, who it's written to. Etc. So our first one here we're going to jump right into is Romans 8.28, and I'll read it from the ESV. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. Now, this is something that people like to screw up because people usually just like to go into the first half. So walk us through it, guys. Like, why can't we just say God works everything for our good? Well, in one sense, it's actually correct. I mean, the fact <laughs> is, ultimately speaking, all things work together for good. I mean, you have to look at the context of the whole section here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it would be hard to say that this that working all things together for good means that it works all things together for your enjoyment when the section starts with 818, which, you know, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us which kind of fits the context, I think. Uh, it is saying that we are, ultimately speaking, good will work together. Uh, all things will work together for good, but that good is what God ultimately brings to pass, not what God immediately brings to pass. But how can it be good that I suffer? How can that be good? Well, there's an awful lot of text between 18 and 28 that deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually think the whole verse is explained after that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you, you know, again, as you said, Adam, everybody loves the first half. All things work together for good. But it's for those who are called according to his purpose, God's purpose, and it's trusting that his ultimate purpose is for our good. And hence why Paul then talks about how we've been predestined and we're conformed and justified. And then he actually anticipates, I think, the very question you asked, mm-hmm. right? So what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
So it's almost like he's anticipating Christians ask, actually asking the question you just asked. Well, why does it look like bad things happen to good people? Or why, since I became a Christian, do I suffer? And he gets into the whole thing. And I think Steve hit on it. Unfortunately, prosperity gospel people have used this verse to try and make it seem like you can have your best life now, whereas the true Christian knows, no, my best life is to come. Mm-hmm. And I live this life with all of the junk of it, with an understanding of, I, I think Paul, the, the guy who writes this book, to the Corinthians and Second Corinthians, talks about how we move in this momentary suffering, this light affliction, doesn't hold a candle to the eternal weight of glory. Mm-hmm. That awaits. I think Satan loves to make us take a verse like this. You know, you've heard me use the idea that we chicken McDoug at the Bible. So we grab a verse out of a chapter, out of a book, out of a testament, and go, this is going to be my verse. But everything is meant to be taken into, as Steve said, context. Right. And of course, that's going to be important in a lot of cases, because we're going to see this in over and over, as we've seen in the first two episodes of this kind of thing. The problem isn't that it's necessarily a completely incorrect understanding of the text. It's that it's a completely decontextualized understanding of the text. I mean, as I said, it does. Act, it is actually true that all things work together for the good for those who love and serve the Lord and are called according to His purposes. Mm-hmm. It's just, what do you mean by good? Well, the rest of the text explains it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we also get people quoting this who aren't even Christian. Christian sometimes. Absolutely. Right? Um, which, again, bows to the fact, read your Bible, because the rest of the verse goes on. Um, and a lot of people, I mean, it's it's tempting to want to believe in this, right? That, you know, yeah. God God wants me to have my best life now, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I, why we want good things to happen to us. We, we complain when we get, when one thing goes wrong, right? right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's tempting to believe this yeah. until you actually face reality and realize that this isn't true. Well, well, the other part, yeah, well, I mean, like, it's, I think part of the reason why it's so tempting for people to want to believe is because passages like these for Christians, I mean, they do provide tremendous hope. Yeah. And in times of hardship, in times of suffering, whatever that yeah. might look like, what do you, what do you need in those moments? Well, you, you, you look for anything that will cling, like you cling to hope. Right. And this is, these are parts of areas of scripture where we can actually find it, but we do need to be careful to find it in the right way and actually read it in its context, well, get the truth. And that gets, I get, guess, kind of close to the fact of what we really need to be careful of as Christians, namely that we have to be careful that where we find our hope, where we find our faith, where we find our trust, is not in, say, for example, a, a, a positive life now, but in the ultimate goal and glory of Jesus Christ. Because it's so easy to just simply take things and, you know, make yourself believe in hopes that aren't real. And if those hopes don't fulfill themselves, then you blame Jesus for it. But Jesus never promised this. What happens is God promised something that's far greater than what you thought he was promising. But because you were, you know, taking, well, you know, all things will work together. So obviously I'm not going to have to deal with cancer or divorce or anything like that because, you know, all things work together. And so when those things happen, you're you're devastated. Except God promised something far greater than the than the absence of pain. But I, I, again, right? This is why we want to teach our people to read the Bible mm-hmm. slowly, deliberately, consistently, and systematically. Right? So you go all the way back to verses four, sorry, verses twelve to seventeen, 
where Paul is reminding us that we are now heirs with Christ. So we're part of the family of God. But in verse 18, we, we find out about this future glory. And again, it's, he says here what he says to the Corinthians, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's the runway that gets us to verse 28. Right. Two things about verse 28, though, again, about why you need to just take your time. One, the first part of this verse is actually about you and I, right? And we know that for those who love God, mm-hmm. so it's not for everybody, it's yep. for those who love God, which means you trust him. Right. You you are looking to him. So that's the, that part of it. And it's then those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So I think one is about us acknowledging who do I trust, who do I look to? Mm-hmm. And the other one, the other reminder is that the one I look to and the one I trust, then I do believe that circumstances, good, bad, ugly, and indifferent, because they're according to his plan. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament in Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused as a rapist by Potiphar's wife, Mm -hmm. spends three years in jail, Mm -hmm. has a a couple of guys he helps in jail. One of those guys forgets him, so he rots there for another, uh, what is it, 18 months or 36 months after that? Two years at least. Yeah. Finally, and then decades later, comes face-to-face with the very brothers... Because now he's the second in charge of Egypt. He's able to rescue his brothers, rescue his father, all of these things. And what does he say to them after the death of his father, when the brothers are panicking that now Joseph is going to get vengeance? He's the one that says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm -hmm. Now, Now, stop everybody and think about that. This was a guy that was betrayed by his family, accused as a rapist, rotted in prison, and was innocent the entire time. Mm-hmm. That is not your best life now. Not even close. Right. Right. But, but he could see all of the affairs of his life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I can bring this personal as someone who's experienced some real trauma in his you know, childhood and young, young life at the hands of others, have been victimized by others. And I went through a period of time where I wondered, where is God? Why God? But I can tell you now as an adult who's been in ministry for half his life, the countless people I've been able to come alongside of and walk through the trauma that I walk through, and I've seen so many people rescued and loved and find hope, I can get to a point now where I can say what others meant for evil, God has orchestrated my life to be able to help so many people. And although that is not in any way to minimalize the hurt and trauma I've, I've went through and experienced... I can now say I'm not a victim, but a victor in Christ, because Christ used those circumstances. And of course, following the logic of the text, I mean, if you go into verse 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, right? in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's actually even an an even greater uh, ultimate joy being provided, provided here, namely us being remade into the image of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the context, it's a very um uplifting and like you you can find rest in it um Absolutely. this this verse actually was the only time that i cried during my own preaching i ended up preaching to myself <laughs> i mean i wrote this sermon i practiced the sermon and when i get up and preach it on sunday morning it was maybe a week no at least two weeks um after we had miscarried 
So the first time we get pregnant, we get pregnant in January of 2016. Um, we missed Carrie halfway through February. She was supposed to be eight weeks long. She she only measured about five weeks long. Very hard miscarriage. I took it harder than either of us did. I took it really, really hard. Um, and then I'm preaching the sermon, and I come across this verse, and as I'm reading it out, it just smacks me over the head. Like the Holy Spirit just grips me. I start crying as I'm trying to read out this verse, right? Um, but now the whole church knew that we had miscarried and that they had come alongside us. They were really great in that aspect. Um, but it was in that moment that hit me, like, even this can and will be used for good. And that was so comforting in the moment that, no, God knew this was going to happen. It didn't catch him off guard. Mm. And I can trust him with that. And it was probably one of the most, it's, I, I haven't forgotten, I don't think I ever will. The, like, it's the only time I've actually cried and during one of my own sermons and, it just drew me right off guard because it's like, I wrote this, right? right. It wasn't just a, a spur-of-the-moment thing. But the beauty of that, Adam, and that testimony is you're not... Christians understanding this, it doesn't mean we don't deal with the rawness of our emotions. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, you, did, you, you Because this gave you hope didn't mean you had to pretend like you weren't hurting. No, no. Or or that you, you weren't struggling with the fact that you couldn't understand how this was good. Yep, it would seem... Anything but good. Right. Yep. What it does mean is, though, I can find peace mm-hmm. knowing some Im- irrefutable truths wrap- wrapped up in this entire chapter, especially when you read beyond verse 28 to the rest of it, because he says, right, who shall bring anything against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who was to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? And so he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. What? Because ne- neither nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ including the heartache of miscarrying mm-hmm. or the trauma of abuse. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean we don't feel the pain. It doesn't mean we have to walk, we don't walk through the ramifications of these things. We do. Mm-hmm. What it does mean is that no matter what happens to me in life, I can bring my questions, my doubts, my hurt, my pain to the one who knows me and who never leaves me nor forsakes me. And no matter what, at some point, whether it's this life or eternal life, I gain perspective. Amen. Mm-hmm. And I, I, quite frankly, I'd be, I'd be this bold. The world doesn't get that. The world doesn't get it because if this is the best you have, if this life is the best you got, and so many of us don't get a good one, mm-hmm. where do you find hope? How do you find meaning? This is why even pop culture, right? When that basketball coach whose wife got killed by the person texting and I love it. He said in the eulogy, right? Everybody says, you know, we're so sad that you lost your wife. He says, I didn't lose my wife. I know where she is. I know where she is. <laughs> you know, he said, mm-hmm. I am temporarily separated from her. I didn't lose her. Yep. She's in the presence of God. So there's a person there that's even in the morning of tragic death. Why? Just in the last 48 hours. What is the viral video making its way around Twitter and Facebook is that guy sitting in the middle of a tornado ravaged home with a piano that's all and and guy buddies just playing. There's just something about that name. Yeah. I saw that. That's made news agencies and everything. The world is fat. How can you do that? Because of verses like Romans eight twenty eight. Right. Yep. Yep. It's not I won the lottery. No, it's when I've lost everything. There's still something about that name. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what it means. That for those who love God, mm. He's working all things for the good to right. those who, who He has called. Uh, so let's move on to another one. 
uh, we, we spent a good time on that one. So maybe we'll just move on to another one that I really want to get to. We'll go to Revelation 3 and 20. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. So I think this is going to be a fun one. I think we all enjoy <laughs> this one. Um, this one has been misused probably just as much as like uh, two and two or three gathering in my name. Did, did Steve, um, did you just shudder? Is that <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if, if you've got your Bible with you, you don't know what passage it is, look it up. Um, basically, I can sum it up by saying any Savior is allowed in. I mean, we're next to Christmas, right? Any mummers allowed in? Uh, but here's what it says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And typically, or at least historically, we have generally used this as a evangelism verse. Yeah. If, you, if only you, lost sinner, will open the door... Jesus can come in, and you, he'll, he'll, he'll have. Except he's writing to a church. Yeah, but but now, <laughs> help so that everybody understands out there. This is largely because of a guy who did a painting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He actually painted this, and a lot of people see this painting. I think I think grandmother had the painting. Yeah. Right. And so I mean, I grew up listening to this preached all the time and just, you know, there's a door, but the knob is on the inside, and God just knocks, and you got to go open up the door, and then he'll come in. And then, you know, David just hit it. But the problem is, is that it's being written to a church. It's already assumed that everybody being spoken to professes well, and, Christ. <laughs> and I mean, it's it, uh, just in the context in Revelation, I mean, it's writing to the seven churches of Asia. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't even, it, it well, isn't even a moderately, you know, well, they're, they're, they were a church once, but now they're complete unbelievers. No, they're, they're claiming to be believers now. And just look at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Yeah. I don't know if I said that right, but... Laodicea is right, yeah. yeah. But this one's Pandora's box, Adam, because it's not just this behold. This is also the passage of, I'd rather you be hot or cold because <laughs> I'm going to throw you up. Yep, and, right. You know, this is the same passage people told me, well, see, it's better to be totally against Jesus or totally on fire for Jesus because these lukewarm Christians, God's got no time for. And I remember being a kid in church going, what? So you're saying God himself said, I'd rather you just totally, I can stomach total rejection? Be- and, and this made yeah, no. no sense to me. I mean, is, isn't it that, you know, Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. Yeah, but ding, ding, ding. Warm water is not, is not good for anything. And you know what? Going to Israel was great for that because I got to go to Israel and understand they have these open aqueduct, mm-hmm. uh, aqueduct systems. And so if you understand a bit of your history here with, with Laodicea where it was, and you got Hierapolis to, to one side of it, and you got Colossae to the other. Yeah. One was known for its medicinal hot springs. One was known for its refreshing cool springs. So all that water had to be piped in by aqueduct. And, and right to the point, there was a cliche in Laodicea that you knew if someone wasn't there from there, because mm-hmm. the first time they tasted the water, they would spit it out because it was an open aqueduct. So the hot water had cooled down to warm coming from Colossae or Hierapolis, and the cold water had warmed up to warm, coming from the other. And so the bottom line is Jesus is saying, listen, you're neither refreshing or healing. Yep. Yeah. So he's basically, this passage, this entire thing is a letter to a church. And what's tragic is, but they think they're all that in a bag of chips. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Like they think they're hot stuff. And Jesus is saying, no, while you might think you're hot stuff, you're neither refreshing the culture around you. You're neither healing the culture around you. Mm -hmm. You don't even allow, you claim to serve me and love me. And you've got me on the outside. Well, we'll just look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich. Right. I have prospered. I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pity, pitiable. Pit, yep. Um, pitiable. Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Yep. I mean. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. There's a bit of Romans 8.28. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it, it's, it changes everything that he's talking to a church, right? Just before verse 20, you know, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and... Repent. Repent. Or he's talking to Christians and saying, like, guys, like you you need to get back on track here. He's basically saying, you have shoved me to the outside. Behold, I'm here. Like, I'm here to be in the midst of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, it, it, it is true that if you do come to come to Jesus, he's never turned anybody away yet. <laughs> right. I love it. I've never met the sinner who came to God who God didn't want. Right. Right. Yeah. But the fact is, that's not what this text is about. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, there are good texts that would be useful in an evangelistic context. This is not an evangelistic text. It is a text calling us as believers to repent of our hard heartedness, our self righteousness, yep. and turn our self sufficiency. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And turn again to Jesus. And it's a warning we can take to our own churches. Oh. Right? Um, and to make sure, like, where do we stand in line with this? Especially as, you know, as we endeavor to plant new churches, you know, exactly. they'll be so caught up in thinking that, you know, we're succeeding, we're, we're, we're meeting, we're checking all the world's standards, but yet we push Jesus to the outside. You know, we right. want to make sure that's not where we stand. Exactly. In fact, I would challenge anybody, because these, these seven letters, it's, it's interesting that in the world I grew up in, the Church of Laodicea is always held up as this really evil church, and look at how God is going to judge this church. And there's a lot of even futuristic implications to this on how you interpret mm-hmm. what this big $50 term called eschatology and stuff like that. And yet everybody forgets, I actually think the church complimented most for its stand is Ephesus. I actually think the most damnable judgment declared is to the church at Ephesus, because back in chapter 2, God says, I want you to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Mm-hmm. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not even going to be present in, amongst you. Yeah. So unlike when you're dealing with Laodicea, in Ephesus, it's possible that Jesus is going to walk away. In in Laodicea, he's saying, please, let me in. Right, I'm yes, for Ephesus, he, he could walk away, yeah, right? Ephesus. Yeah, and this is what I'm saying. To, to me, could there be anything scarier than a church who thinks it's it's standing for something? And God says, you're more in love with the stand than the Savior, so I'm out of here. Yep. Whereas to Laodicea, he's like, you're blind, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're, you're poor, you need to you need to realize you're trying to do church without me, and I'm on the outside looking in, yeah. and I want in. And Steve's right. I mean, listen, if you want to do a great evangelism and have an altar call and all that, go to Matthew 11. Come on to me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There are beautiful pictures of evangelism and invitation in the Bible. Absolutely. Don't don't take this, which is just challenge to Christians. I'd love to see a lot more churches get serious about this this passage mm-hmm. than Christians yelling at unchristian people to come get serious about this. Um, I think we'd be much better off. Yeah, those passages are good for us to go back and like not even get caught up in just the eschatology of it or the end times, but just like how does it apply to us? Yeah. Um, and what, is our church in one of these positions? Yeah. Right? And, you know, be, just be mindful and checking ourselves. Uh, very quickly here before we uh, uh, finish up for the day, Let's go to Proverbs 22, verse 6. And this is a good one, because I know a lot of people would like, uh, recite this one, and yet, uh, anyways, we'll read it, and then we'll get into it. It says, Train up a child in the way he shall go, 
Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, how many times was that said to me about how Christians should raise their children? And then they were left wondering, why in the world did my child leave the faith? Right? Like, if, this is, if this is what I'm supposed to do, and they're not supposed to depart, for it, depart from it, then what's going on? I had a very wise, I'm not a father, but I had a very wise person once tell me, who may or may not be sitting around this table, that you don't save your kids, God does. Uh, I remember that being in the Bible, actually. <laughs> Boom, problem yeah. solved. No, no. You, you know what? I think what we miss is, first of all, we need to let our audience know how to approach Proverbs. Absolutely. Proverbs is a collection of principles, of wise sayings. Mm-hmm. In a mathematical term, if you think in terms of geometry, it's like axioms. Okay? These are general principles. The other thing is, because we take New Testament lenses to go and read backwards into the Old Testament, Steve, Steve and David and Adam, you know, you know this, we think salvation. So we read a verse like, train up a child in the way he should go. But this all, you know, this is probably predominantly Solomon, David uh, uh, ideology here. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you really think about David as a father, you know, I'm not sure that we would write any books and say, there's the guy to follow. Um, yet what he's talking about is in general ideologies of general principles, how you invest in your kids, how you treat them to be civil, you know, have be and men and women of integrity and stuff like that, yep. that the older they get, there's an idea that they're going to remember. Man, my dad told me this. My mom taught me this. This is what I remember. There's an expression I've had. The older I get, the smarter my dad gets. Well, right. and, and it's true, too, because there's a, a lot of things that aren't moral in their standpoint right. that would also be this context. If, you're, if your parents trained you well in how to deal with money, chances are good you're a little better with money than people who didn't get trained up with money. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't mean that you're going to be you know, absolutely perfect <laughs> with it, and it doesn't mean that you can't make mistakes, because, again, it's a proverb. It's not a, it's not a promise. It's a general principle. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, just go look at the one, I mean, the next one, <laughs> yes. it says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender, which by the way is usually true, but mm-hmm. I especially mean, at Christmas time absolutely. when everybody's maxing out their credit cards, but it's not absolutely in all cases true. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody who has a mortgage is not actually a slave to the bank. Um, That's right. Yeah. We, we just need to be able to get into our Bibles. Right, absolutely. Understand the context of the book, what what the book is made up of, who it's written to, and that's not hard to do. Your Bibles have that, yeah. Right, your Bibles. You can get a lot of Bibles now where it just says, "Here is who it was written to. Here it was written by. Here's the theological issues with it. Here's like the date it was written, and you can. It's all right there." But you know what, Adam? I would even go back a bit further because some people think, "Well, so I need a decoder ring to read my Bible," and and. These things are great helps, Mm -hmm. and we should. I mean, every one of us here has many, many books in our libraries. We spend our lives, by God's grace, we're allowed to study the Bible almost for a living. But I'm going to tell you, even the book of Proverbs, because my dad taught me this, if you read a proverb a day, you read through it every month. And if you just slowly read this, and I would encourage people to journal, you will see, because there's many other places where it talks about family and child rearing and all these things, and you will see patterns and you will see pictures develop. Mm Mm-hmm even just in the daily, simple reading of God's Word and not plucking stuff out, plucking things out for your own, that I like that verse because it makes me feel good, that verse because it applies to my life right now. Right. No, read the entire Bible, 
over and over again, slowly and systematically. Don't put pressure on yourself to checklist. Mm -hmm. Do it in a relationship every day. Check in with God. Let him speak to you. You talk to him. And I'm telling you right now, uh, all these other helps are, are, are definitely, I applaud them and we need them. But I do feel that we sell short the idea that people would not avoid some of these screw-ups unless they had some of these helps. A lot of these screw-ups would not happen if people just faithfully read God's Word. Yeah, I know no, you're right. Uh, another thing, though, that and, and I mean, this is a minor one that people don't tend to notice, read it with other people. Mm. I mean, the yeah. fact is, one of the, one of the worst ways that I've had to misunderstand parts of Scripture is I've got things that I'm blind to when I read stuff. Yep. And I just read it with another person who isn't quite as blind to that. And he asks me a question. It's like, I didn't see that. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then that's helpful. It, it, it allows me to see a little bit more of the, what the text is saying and then actually come to a better conclusion about it. So this is not about making your child a Christian and they're going to stay a Christian. No. No. Darn it. Because you can't make your child a Christian. And, and, and step back and even think about that. Because what, what, define when he is old. Yeah. Some people say that's when he graduates high school. Some people say, well, when he's when he or she's at a university. Some mm -hmm. might say, well, when they finally get married or finally have kids. You know, what if that's not until much later in life? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you know, I've always said the Bible never, ever lays out a program by which you can be an absolute failure or success as a parent. What it holds up is being faithful as a parent. We have been given this responsibility as parents to reflect God to our kids and teach them to be decent human beings. Mm -hmm. But the saving of their soul is only something God can do. Mm -hmm. And that's so hard to accept. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and, also, and you know, as one of, sorry, David, as oh, one of our right. endurance says, right? I, I can be a great, I, I can be a great husband to my wife, but I'm a lousy savior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can be a great father to my kids, but I'm a lousy savior. Mm -hmm. So my goal should be to be a good dad and introduce them to an amazing savior. I meant yeah. that. And, and being a good dad too, just to highlight, I mean, again, not a dad, but even a husband or, you know, a, a son or whatever, it's not about just always being like, well, well, trying to be the savior, right? Mm -hmm. Always trying to be the one who does everything that's right. But often being a good parent or being a good husband or whatever that might look like is actually being able to admit when you're wrong. Yeah. And being able to, you know, ask for forgiveness, taking mm -hmm. that position of weakness and actually modeling what that looks like with your kids to be weak, to be um, in that position, to then bring it to God, to confess it, to pray. Um, and I think that's often, too, something, something that can be missed when we read stuff like this, because we're like, oh, well, that just means we got to do everything right. Like, it's all up to yeah. me to do it. But we can actually do far better sometimes doing wrong, but doing wrong well than doing right not well. I don't know if that actually came across yeah. well, but no. <laughs> well, again, it's of interest, yeah. right? That, you know, again, we'd all be, we'd be the first ones to say, David should not be writing any how-to parent books. And yet that same David who looks like a colossal failure as a dad is the same David that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it cannot be about perfection, but rather who an imperfect David ran to. Mm-hmm when he was a colossal failure. Which helps when you read your Bible regularly. <laughs> so guys, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Um, 
this is going to be our last episode for the year. So catch us again in January. Uh, we'll have another few more bloopers starting off in <laughs> January. So that should be fun. Look forward to that. But uh, again, just a reminder to just get into your Bible. Amen. Um, get in the habit of reading it daily or you know as often as you can and read it with others. Mm. Right. And then use the tools available to you and just enjoy God's word. Enjoy being in his presence and, you know, uh, applying that to your life. Uh, and then you'll be a lot less likely to screw up scripture. Amen. So until next year, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we'll catch you again next time. You have been listening to Rugged Theology. Rugged Theology is a podcast of Mile One Mission. If you'd like to know more about Mile One Mission and our work in Newfoundland, please visit us at www.mileonemission.com. Dot ca.